Um, then in addition, the storm has had additional consequences for us. Uh, in particular, it's dark. <laughs> Dust devils and local storms to regional events and beyond. There's a lot contributing to the planet encircling dust event currently happening on Mars. But how does something like this happen? How can an entire planet fall victim to this immense dusty storm? And how are we studying it? We'll talk seasons, storms, and how all this dust is affecting our beloved rovers on the surface. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. So last episode, we talked about weather on Mars, but in particular, we focused on the red planet's past climate, and we're talking far past, billions of years. But this week, we're taking a very different look at it and focusing in on a super topical and very near-term event, the global dust storm currently taking hold of Mars just a few weeks after the equinox. Several regional storms have combined to blanket the planet in a thick haze of dusty particles, blocking out the sun and dramatically altering rover operations on the surface. Curiosity is stumbling around in the dark while Opportunity, who relies solely on solar power, has been out of contact for more than two weeks. If you're interested in the details of this little rover, I should let you know that we were able to speak with Mike Siebert, our past guest from episode 29 and a former rover operator from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the effect such a storm on opportunity has and what might be happening to it now. It's a special 15-minute conversation available to all We Martians patrons and it's in the bonus feed now. Mike gives some really great tidbits on how the rover operates in such low power modes and what kind of scenarios will play out over the next little bit. But despite the danger to opportunity and the impact to operations for curiosity, the global storm presents another important event, a chance to study Mars weather up close and personal. It's the first such storm in over 10 years, and the only storm since the 70s during which we had an operating nuclear-powered spacecraft on the surface. It's a prime opportunity for science, and I wanted to learn more about how these storms work, so I reached out to Mark Lemon, a research scientist at the Space Science Institute. Mark is an expert on atmospheric dust and operates instruments on both the current NASA rovers. Special thanks to Bruce Cantor at Malin Space Science Systems for connecting me with Mark. All right, so we're here with Mark Lemon from the Space Science Institute. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing just fine. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to get into a probably one of the most topical interviews I've done in a while. I, I tend not to dabble in the kind of breaking news situation, but with this huge storm going on on Mars right now, I figured it you know it just wasn't right to not talk about it. So um, I really appreciate you joining and, and sharing some of your expertise. Why don't we start with a little bit about you? What's your current role? Where do you you know where are you working and uh, what's your background, your education? Okay, well, I'm actually uh, in tr transition from an employment perspective. I'm finishing up at Texas A&M University where I've been an associate professor in atmospheric sciences. 
and going into my last week uh, in that role, and I'm starting at Space Science Institute as a research scientist. Through all that, I'm continuing my participation in rover science teams. I've been involved with Mars missions going back to Pathfinder, uh, which is something that I got into after I finished up graduate school. I, I have a physics undergraduate degree from University of Washington, and from there I went to University of Arizona, which has a great planetary science department, and uh, fell into looking at aerosols and planetary atmospheres there, uh, where my advisor, Marty Tomasco, was designing the descent imager for the Titan mission, Huygens, uh, at the time. And so I had a chance to participate in that, shifted to uh, Jupiter project as a postdoc, uh, somewhat accidentally fell into Mars work after that and uh, have kind of been involved there since then. I, I seem to see that a lot with uh, planetary scientists where you just kind of, you feel like you like space and you get into it. And then the the planet or the specialty you kind of fall into seems to be a lot more by accident than, than you might think. <laughs> it is. There's, you know, an opportunity comes along and you follow it. You may have in mind that, oh, I'm going to study X. And then it turns out that, well, there just aren't the opportunities for there. And you happen to meet the leading persons for the study of why. And they say, hey, I need someone who can do this. And <laughs> you end up doing something you didn't imagine. I certainly think um, when I was in graduate school studying Titan, and I you know, had the usual graduate student working on a PhD, really in-depth knowledge of a very specific subject. I couldn't imagine studying Mars there. I didn't know anything about Mars. I was like going, at least you know, no more than the average person, frankly. Uh, going from studying Titan to Mars just did not seem like a transition I could manage. I looked at all these people who had studied multiple planets, and I, I just didn't quite get it. And I, I couldn't be that. I was just going to do Titan for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> didn't turn out that way. No. Well, uh, uh... Speaking on behalf of all the Martians listening, we're very glad to have you on Team Mars. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what's going on. So um, as is normal this time of uh, year on Mars, the dust storms start to kick off. But um, this is a pretty special year. We seem to have a very, very large dust event happening. And I thought it'd be good to talk about sort of some of the basics of these kinds of storms. So can you sort of maybe give us a broad definition of what a dust storm on Mars is? Because I've heard a lot of things about, you know, we call it a storm. Maybe storm isn't the right word. It's the closest we have. But maybe kind of give us a you know, broad overview of what is happening on Mars today. Okay, so there's a whole family of events, uh, some of which happen at any given time all over Mars. Uh, so the first thing is, of course, uh, Mars is a planet with a very dry surface right now. And there's dust on the planet, mostly that has been blown around the planet for billions of years. So it's gotten mixed together, the same dust at the Phoenix landing site up north uh, versus the rover landing sites near the equator. We see very similar characteristics. And all of that is transported in the atmosphere. And the things that can raise the dust into the atmosphere range from the very small scales. We see one meter wide to 100 meter wide dust devils going across the surface. And those are places where uh, convection starts, rotation starts, you have winds going rapidly around in a circle. And the, the fast winds right near the center are capable of moving sand and lifting dust. And we see dust raised up into the atmosphere from that. But those are, like I said, one to 100 meter scale, sort of you know, football field or less. And 
then there are larger events that kind of pick up and don't necessarily go anywhere, but some of them grow more significantly and they can get to the point where they're 100 square kilometers. Around that size, we call it a dust storm. So there are, there are events in between in size, but they either peter out and don't really do much in the atmosphere or they grow up to a local dust storm. So this 100 square kilometer plus uh, event is what we would call a local dust storm. Those are going on at Mars almost all the time somewhere. They, they move around seasonally, but there's, there's usually some dust lifting event in these small storms. Uh, the rovers, Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity have been hit by these local dust storms from time to time. Uh, and even for the solar powered rovers, they're not a big deal. Some of these local dust storms can grow and in some regions, they're more likely to do so. And once they get to millions of square kilometers, then we call them regional dust storms. And, and so these regional dust storms are huge. That think about something that's a thousand miles on a side. Uh, but those are the regional dust storms and you can have one or more regional dust storms going on on Mars at any given time. Uh, in the summer, a regional dust storm in Hellas is not particularly uncommon and then you might have something uh, somewhere else. So almost every Mars year, or every Mars year, uh, during the perihelion season, during the southern summer season, we see regional dust storms that crop up in various places in the southern hemisphere. In addition, you can get regional dust storms from the northern hemisphere that are caused by essentially winter storms. And on Mars, unlike Earth, the, these winter storms can cross the equator and go into the southern hemisphere. And they may grow more once they do that because there's more energy available. Uh, it is fairly rare for these storms to get all that much bigger than that. And then every several years, Mars has what we colloquially call a global dust storm. And the more specific terminology for it is a planet encircling dust event. And the reason people make that distinction is uh, simply that the storm isn't everywhere. That it, if you think about stormy weather as being crazy winds, lifting dust, blowing stuff around, that is isolated to a handful of very large regions on Mars. So, so think about the conditions right now as being, I don't know the count, maybe a half a dozen different regional dust storms in different places on Mars. But each of these is furiously pumping dust into the atmosphere and that dust is spreading out and circling the planet. And the storms themselves are distributed around the planet and have been moving around on the planet. And so they've lifted dust and they've covered Mars with it. So the dust is planet encircling, the storms are less planet encircling, but the storminess affects the whole planet. Uh, so I'm personally comfortable with either of the terms. Some people get very picky about it. <laughs> okay, so that actually paints a really good picture. So there's actually a handful of these these bigger storms moving around, but because of how many there are and how large they are, kind of yeah, at the same time, we get, we get that sort of confluence of events that makes a, a planet encircling dust event. Yeah, so the way that you get one of those is to have, you know, at least three big regional dust storms that merge, in some cases, physically, that, that the, the regional dust storms can actually join together. Uh, but at the very least, they merge in the, in the sense that they're affecting the atmosphere in the same way, because once these things get enough dust in them, the dust is absorbing sunlight in the daytime, and it's prohibiting infrared radiation from the surface. It's acting like a thermal blanket at nighttime. So it's really changing the weather once you have enough dust in the sky. 
And so you have a few of these things, and they're really changing the weather over this million-plus square kilometer region. That starts to perturb the entire planet. Right, right, right. Um, one of our listeners, Leon, was wondering, you know, what what is what is like the atmospheric profile of Mars and how does that contribute to how these storms can connect? Like, do, you know, is there a jet stream on Mars? Is it like on Earth? Is there uh, how tall is the atmosphere? What's the, the conditions look like in terms of, of how it affects the storm? Okay, so the Martian atmosphere is similar to ours structurally. Sorry, that was a surprise. Uh, similar to ours structurally in some ways and different in other ways. One, it does not have an ozone layer. Uh, so because of the lack of ozone or anything else in the stratosphere, it actually doesn't create a stratosphere. So the temperature is, say, a typical daytime atmosphere, warmest at the surface. It cools with elevation, just like on Earth. Uh, but then you get to the place where convection kind of stops. And at that point, it's a kind of flat temperature profile for a large distance vertically, up to 80, 90 kilometers uh, high in the atmosphere. So there's no stratosphere and mesosphere like on Earth. But there's a very large 20 to 30 kilometer thick troposphere that has convective activity, uh, which is pretty thick. And in that place, once the air gets moving, you can have warm, warm parcels of air that go all the way up to 30 or more kilometers in the sky, and dust in that parcel of air can help it get further warming, and so it rises quite quickly. Uh, so that, that's the basic vertical structure. Then in addition to that, there are vertical winds, just like on Earth. And on Earth, we have a, a very stable pattern of winds where you have rising air near the equator, falling air near 30 degrees north or south, rising air again around 60 degrees, and that moves around seasonally, and the jet stream is associated with that. Mars also has patterns like that and has jet streams associated with those patterns, but the, the cell structure can change quite dramatically. So right now on Mars, or very recently, it has been in its equinox structure. It's the structure where the sun crosses the equator, and there's rising air at the equator, and it goes in both directions toward the poles, uh, but it's actually a very large, large, it doesn't stop at 30 degrees north and south, it keeps on going. And so there's this two-cell structure that goes all the way up to the polar regions before there's finally another cell. Hmm. That is really transient on Mars. And normally, once you get away from the, the spring equinox or the fall equinox, then you have a cross-equatorial transport. And so it's fairly common to have the rising cell be somewhere in the southern hemisphere during southern summer. And then you drag in air from the north, and that helps bring the northern dust storms into the south. Um, so this dust event is actually very exceptional in that it occurred when the general circulation didn't really support northern storms getting into the south, uh, but they managed to do so anyway because they started perturbing the, the overall circulation. Uh, so just how you make storms like this in the first place is very difficult and why this storm managed to make itself um, when when the at a time when when these storms aren't normally uh, found is quite exciting it's it's early in the year right um, it, it has happened on occasion before I don't know the whole history of Martian global dust storms but um, generally speaking they occur later and they occur once the um, the atmospheric circulation shifts to a more southern summer circulation and when we say dust, um, what does that actually mean? You know, I, I think about dust 
in my house and I have this dust on tops of my fridge and stuff. But that's not really what we're talking about here. What, what, you know, what particle size are we looking at? What's the characteristics of this kind of dust that we see? Yeah, so think in general about a handful of clay that you completely dry out and you grind up to a really small particle. That's what this is, is, is a clay-type mineral that has iron oxides in it. And the particle sizes in the dust are incredibly fine. Uh, we actually get an analog for the dust on Earth to study by going to Mauna Kea and find uh, basalt that has been weathered by water and rusted a little bit. And it's similar to Mars dust, but much, much bigger particle sizes. We're looking at things that are maybe three microns across, typically. Uh, and it's really a distribution of sizes. So there are smaller particles and there are larger particles. Uh, but, but generally speaking, we talk about three micron diameter uh, dust. And one of the things that we'll be looking for in the dust storm is to what extent in the lifting areas we see larger dust particles. Because uh, there's a distinction between what's laying around on the surface to be lifted by the storm and then what gets lifted into the atmosphere and then what can stick around in the atmosphere a long time. Uh, so some of the models say, yeah, the storms probably pick up five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten micron dust, but that stuff falls as very quickly as you move away from the lifting region. And most of the observations that we have are not in that kind of environment. And certainly even back in 1971, when they studied the global dust storm at that time when Mariner showed up, they saw arriving a month and a half or so after the dust storm and then observing on for several months as the dust decayed out of the atmosphere, they couldn't see any change in the particle size as the dust was settling out of the atmosphere. That it was already at a particle size that was kind of stable in the atmosphere, and the bigger particles didn't fall out faster. Hmm. Uh, so the size stayed about the same. And that's basically what we see with Mars most of the time, is there are really subtle variations in the size of the particles, and they're basically in that three micron across ballpark. Okay. And and uh, this is another question from a listener. Uh, Lars wants to know, like, does this kind of... Um, dust movement is it a a major factor in in the in the geology like is this a significant way that mass moves around mars yeah this is incredibly significant and it's really hard to see that just looking at an individual event uh, so think about this dust storm at the opportunity site we've got a measurement of what we call an optical depth 11 or so uh, in the dust, and it's probably gotten more than that. So that's a, a measure in terms of how much light extinction, how much light loss from the dust there is. But we can translate that into a total amount of dust. And if you took all of the, the dust in the dust storm and collapsed it down onto the surface and measured how thick it is, you'd still be talking something in the 10 micron ballpark. Yeah, you're not talking about an inch of dust, you're not talking about something smaller than that. So the total amount of dust that was picked up off the surface isn't that much, uh, but then you think about, okay, well, maybe the dust that was picked up off the surface was picked off, picked up off of a smaller area and then deposited on some larger area. So maybe it was excavated a little bit more, but you're measuring in microns still, and you don't get very far geologically measuring in microns until you think about how many billions of years and how many millions or hundreds of millions of these events there could have been in that time. And so that is the connection between what we see happening in these storms where there are specific source regions and sink regions, places the dust comes from, places the dust goes to. And as Mars's climate shifts, 
So there's there's a polar wander on, on Mars. So the, uh, the obliquity changes. The North Pole goes more toward the sun in its summertime uh, versus something that's more Earth-like like it is right now. The circulation changes. The dust sources and sinks change. And that means that you're at, you're digging in some areas, not just 10 microns in one storm, but 100 million storms worth over the history of Mars. And so there are some areas that get dug and buried, dug and buried, dug and buried. And we see that in the geology where there are places where there is a net erosion and we see cliffs being formed and dug. And so we, what they call it scarp retreating. Uh, so the cliff face is being pushed back. And lo and behold, at the bottom of that cliff, there's half of a crater sticking out that was formed before all the material in that cliff was there. And on Earth, that would be really easy to explain because all of the oceans coming and going and, and ways that you can change sedimentation. And on Mars, if it's not a place where there's lava, which is not going to blow away in the wind, uh, then it's aeolian. It's, it's uh, wind-transported dust. And so we see the evidence that wind-transported dust is changing Mars not so much day by day, but, you know, millennia by millennia. Hmm. So it's kind of like the the dust acts like it takes the role of 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 an ocean would be on on Earth because it's it's happening so much more frequently than it is on Earth and it's you know air is kind of like a fluid in, in the same sense so it's kind of eroding and 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 moving sediment around the same way an ocean might. Yeah. So winds and dust are changing the landscape on Mars and we see that in the same way that we see on Earth that they create sedimentary layers. Uh, just like we see on Earth, it's just a different mechanism. Hmm. And on Earth, you know, you go somewhere where there's a big exposure of sedimentary rocks. So you can see many, many layers piled close to a mile thick uh, in extraordinary places. And that's great. That's half a, half a billion years of, of history. And then on Mars, since we have less turnover of the landscape, we've got, you know, three and a half billion years to look at. Right, right. So what is it about Earth that prevents these storms from happening here? Uh, so I would say for the most part, it's water. Uh, water is both dominant for the weather, uh, but also it inhibits this kind of dust storm. So you go to the driest places on Earth, and you will see smaller dust storms. You go to the jungle, you're not going to find this dust storm. Uh, you put dust in the atmosphere over the Sahara and let the winds blow it out over the ocean, and sure, the dust can, if it, especially if it gets high enough in the atmosphere, it can work its way around the planet. But for the most part, when you get dust into an environment where there's humidity, the water condenses on the dust and you get rain. And the rain falls into more dust on its way out and it cleans the atmosphere. Uh, so, so there's a limit to how much dust you can have in the atmosphere on Earth, and it changes with how much water there is. So on very hot, dry, low humidity days, you can have a dusty environment. Uh, but it's not going to survive into wet weather. More from Mark when we return. All of these Mars interviews got you craving more? Check out our new Red Planet Review. It's a weekly show covering all of the headlines of Mars, from new science papers to spacecraft. It's available exclusively to lander-level patrons contributing at least $3 a month or more over on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash wemartians to start getting your weekly Mars headlines on your private RSS feed today, because Mars doesn't wait for the next podcast. So so let's talk a little bit about um, 
this current storm and, and how we're studying it. So uh, from from my research, it looks like there has been a, um, a big storm every, you know, five, 10 years or so. We had one in 07, one in 01. Um, what's, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe what's what's special about this storm or exceptional about it? And, and you know, what are we what are we using this opportunity to try and learn? So this does seem like a strange storm in terms of the way that it started. And so looking at uh, the development of the storm, especially when we can sit back and put together data from various sources, I think that'll tell us a lot about what can happen on Mars. But the number one most uniquely interesting thing about this storm is simply that we have so many assets in place to study it and that to pick any storm from history, and if we had a rover on the ground that was nuclear powered and could still function, and several orbiters looking down and, uh, from above, that storm would be special. So this storm is special because we can study it so well, and the, the studies are going to be incredibly fascinating, uh, and they'll come from a variety of different directions. I mean, think about the basic idea of a global dust storm. A rover will have a great deal of difficulty telling you something as a global dust storm. Right. We can see that it's dusty where we are. But we have orbiters that are taking pictures in visible light, tracking the apparent motion of the storms. We have orbiters that are studying the uh, temperature profile of the atmosphere, the amount of dust uh, high in the atmosphere. Um, and then from the surface, we're measuring not just the appearance, uh, but the weather instrument, REMS, Ro Rover Environmental Monitoring Station, is collecting things like pressure and temperature data and from looking at the pressures, we can infer things about the dust storm. So the, the pressure changes dramatically in Gale Crater and less so, but it's still significantly everywhere on Mars. And that tells us not just about the weather immediately where we are, but it actually responds to the weather over very large geographical scales. So the pressure is telling us something about Mars in general. In fact, with Viking, they were able to infer a lack of global dust storm in one season late in the Viking mission just from the pressure data. Hmm. Then in addition to looking at the meteorology, the pressure and temperature, we have remote sensing capability on the rovers. We have a camera and we have a spectrometer with ChemCam. So we are able to look at the sky, uh, measure, for instance, how much dust is in the atmosphere by looking at the sun and see how truly faint it has become. It's actually hard to see. Uh, and we have at least one set of pictures where we look straight at the sun and all we saw was sky. The sun was that faint, um, which is, frankly is not that uncommon on Earth. Everyone's been outside on a cloudy day when they can't see the sun and that's all this is. Uh, but seeing that much dust on Mars is quite striking. So we're in the middle of it. We're taking pictures of the sky looking in different directions, and that's going to tell us about the physical properties of the dust. We're going to start seeing how big the dust is that's loaded, get an idea how much mass of dust the atmosphere is supporting, uh, and find out more about the dust that's immediately being lifted into the atmosphere and contrast that with the subset of that that can stick around in the atmosphere for a long, long time. And some of this is going to stick around for months. Hmm. So there must be a, a really important kind of interplay uh, between the orbiters and, and the, the rovers, because you can kind of ground truth the measurements you're getting from orbit, right? Is that kind of how you'd, you'd play it out? Yeah, I think that's a, a key part of it, is that the orbiters can look around at all of Mars and make estimations, for instance, how much dust there is. And then we can go back to the 
what the orbiters see at our rover sites and then say, okay, well, this is what we see from the ground. And then we have an estimation of how to adjust what we're seeing from, from the orbiters. But I think, you know, for the most part, the orbiters give us a really good, what we call a meteorology, a synoptic perspective. We can see the regional scale motions of things. And then at, at the rover, we can study not so much the regional scale motion of the, of the big dust storms, but we can look at the immediate environment within the dust storm and how the dust storm perturbs the environment. Hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, the, the science operations that are happening on the rover right now, they had, they had a plan, you know, to study all these different areas, but with this storm coming in, are you guys making sort of, um, on the fly changes to, to what observations you're choosing to make? Like, is that having a, a really significant uh, impact on, on rover operations? I guess we're talking about curiosity because opportunity is not doing much right now, but, um, you know, so it just I'm trying to think about how how quickly and and how dramatically can you adapt operations given what's going on. Yeah, we've adapted significantly, and there are a few levels of that. So, one is we defined some time ago a global dust storm campaign where we would shift the kinds of observations that we're doing. We always do routine weather monitoring, but we knew that if the orbiter said, "Hey, this year is looking interesting," we should essentially kick the environmental monitoring into high gear, use a slightly higher fraction of the rover resources to study the environment, you know, get more pressure temperature records, get more imaging of the sky. And so we started doing that before the storm hit Gale, after it, it, it got to opportunity first. And so we started that campaign and we've been in that mode ever since. So that's been, that was a planned reaction. And then in addition to that, we're doing opportunistic reactions hey, on this day, we can take some extra uh, measurement that we did not anticipate previously, as well as some reactions that are more reacting to the circumstances. For instance, with the global dust storm in 2007, both rovers saw optical depths in the three to five range, which affected operations, especially since they were solar powered, uh, and they diminished the visibility of the sun and things like that. So we had to shift our imaging to account for that. Uh, we were slightly surprised by going up to the optical depth eight and 10 range that the rovers have seen in this storm. And that makes the sun much less visible. And we've had to adapt our strategies just to the environment. Uh, but we've done that and we're studying the environment that way. Um, then in addition, the storm has had additional consequences for us. Uh, in particular, it's dark. It's um, <laughs> maybe 3% as bright as it normally is, oh, wow. give or take. Uh, it's like an overcast day. And if you're standing outside on, a, on an overcast day, you see it looks kind of gloomy, but it does not mean that you can't see because your eyes are very adaptable. While solar panels are not very adaptable, cameras are somewhat adaptable, but less so. Uh, you can take longer exposures, things like that. Uh, and that's what happened so that we took longer exposures for imaging that was embedded in some sequences that were moving the arm around driving. And that actually ate up a significant fraction of time doing an auto expose in a dark environment. And because we lost that time, things didn't happen the way they were supposed to. And the drive didn't actually end up working. And then we've had additional um, non-lighting uh, 
issues with drive. So we've kind of slowed down our progress lately. Uh, but part of that is simply that the storm was so intense that even though Curiosity is nuclear powered, the lack of light was a problem. And frankly, some of the other investigations we do involve looking at things. And if anyone's taken a look at the images that we're, that we're getting back from Curiosity these days, I mean, it's orange. Yeah. It's a not very attractive shade of orange, frankly. <laughs> it's pretty eerie right now. Um, <laughs> and I, I did see some of the uh, some of the reports that, you know, they're, they are in a pretty treacherous little area, a lot of sharp rocks yeah. in the sand there. So, yeah, driving has been a bit of a challenge. But I, I didn't even think about that because that's the first thing you, you hear about is, well, is Curiosity okay? It's like, yeah, it's fine. It's nuclear powered. It's just carrying on like normal. We're like, well, yes, but it also can't see where it's going. So <laughs> that's a that's Yeah, so, you challenge. know, we're not at the point where we need to have uh, have headlights or anything. Uh, but the illumination is a factor. Hmm. And you know, hopefully things will clear out in in a little while. Uh, dealing with this, you know, the auto exposure takes time. There's a really simple fix for that, which is just give it more time. Uh, so in the long run, that's not a problem. Uh, part of it was just that the storm, uh, it certainly didn't catch us by surprise, but it came up really fast yeah. that, yeah, it got dusty. And then the one drive that was canceled because of these auto exposure, auto exposures, uh, the dust levels tripled in, during the weekend plan. Hmm. And so that that tripling of already thick dust was a little bit of a surprise. Not you know not that would that it would happen, but that it happened so fast and that it happened at that particular timing. Yeah, it seemed to be the same with opportunity. It felt like kind of one week everything was just fine, and then like almost overnight it was like operations are ceased and it was it was bad news yeah with opportunity we had we went through a week um it was very normal weather and then we came in uh, monday and yeah the dust storm had hit um and at that point all of the sequencing was trying to catch up my my role was actually just taking pictures of the sun so we could estimate how much dust that there was and the amount of dust was increasing so fast we can't use auto exposure for that unfortunately so we're doing manual exposures, and I was recommending manual exposures, but the sky was getting darker faster than our communication cycle going back and forth to the rover. <laughs> and so we were not, you know, I would plan on Monday and say, well, given that this is how much dust there is in the sky on Monday, this is what we should do for Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, well, that didn't work, so let's try this. Um, and then we put in a very robust plan over the weekend, so we actually got data in the, in the last communication previously that we have from the rover uh, to estimate how much dust there was in the atmosphere. And we were all uh, quite shocked to have the number go up into double digits. Yeah, yeah, that was scary. That was about two weeks ago today, I think, yeah. too. So uh, hopefully she's hunkered down and, and hanging out there. But so so what's next for this storm? Like, how how good are our forecast models? Are we able to, in any way, kind of predict the longevity or, or where it's going from here? Well, we can't predict it very well. We can see where it is, and so there are people on the orbiter teams that are looking at it and trying to assess how many active regions there are uh, and how active they are. So it's a very qualitative assessment that's, that, you know, the, the activity over here seems to be increasing. The activity over there seems to be decreasing uh, simply because we don't have weather stations around Mars the way we do on Earth. So we can make inferences um, but those inferences are based on limited data, and even the orbital data is not a weather satellite in synchronous orbit that can watch all day long the activity in an area. It's a once-a-day snapshot at, you know, 3 p.m. or something. 
uh, that says this is where the storm is today, this is where the storm is the next day. And so imagine trying to, for to forecast weather on the Earth if all you could do is have an orbital picture at one time in the afternoon. Uh, it, it's just not good enough. And so we're not there with predictions. Uh, but in general, what we can say, the, just from knowing how these kinds of things evolve, is the storm has become planet encircling, which means there's dust everywhere, regardless of where the actual lifting centers are. And the storms function by having winds lift the dust, dust absorb sunlight, and further heat the atmosphere, uh, further accelerating the winds as they drive convection in the atmosphere. And once you have enough dust in the sky, you have less sunlight making it to low elevations where the dust is being lifted, and you've cut the heat engine for the storm. In the same way that a hurricane going over land loses its connection to the warm water that sustains it, right. a dust storm that can't expand into a dust-free environment has choked off its own energy. So this storm will, I think very soon, get to the point where most of the regional storms simply can't expand anymore. And once they can't expand, they die. Hmm. Okay, so they're and, kind of self-balancing then. Yeah, so the storm will run its course. It will run its course soon. Um, I, I think if it's still going and if it's still going as an active lifting storm in two weeks, I would be shocked. One week, slightly surprised. Uh, I think this may be its last real week of lifting. Just this is just a guess, but yeah, um, I, I'm kind of thinking that the lifting is going to peter out. I'm kind of thinking that once that happens, the dust that's in the sky will become more uniform so that the places where it's been the thickest, like the opportunity site, will become more clear relatively fast as that dust just averages all over Mars. And then we, we can actually be very confident about what we can look forward to because we've seen this part play out many times, which is simply that the dust will slowly fall out of the atmosphere and the time scale for that is two, three, four months. So in three or four months, the atmosphere will probably be back to normal, which is just fast enough that like with the Viking dust storms, it will still be within dust storm season once we get out from under this dust storm. And there is the possibility of a second dust storm in the same season, hmm. um, which at least once, maybe a couple times before has happened. Uh, I, I that's not a prediction. That's just saying that it's it's within the realm of possibility. That'd be pretty exceptional if that had happened. Hmm. Um, so what are our what are our biggest gaps in in terms of understanding these? Like what are what are the things we know least about in these storms that we really should focus our efforts on? I think that the number one thing that I would like to see progress on is understanding what kind of conditions allow these storms to go into a global environment? Because even though it's not global storminess, the, these planet encircling dust events are clearly unique features. It, it's not just randomly having a few regional dust storms at the same time. The weather of Mars shifts to make these storms feed off of each other and reinforce each other until the amount of dust chokes them off. And people have tried to model this and global dust storms can show up in the models but the timing of it does not work. Uh, the, the things that they have to do to, to make the models 
work are not sustainable in the long run. Like you can do things like um, think about how much dust is on the surface and maybe it's effectively infinite and Mars can never run out of dust, in which case that they might say that there's a dust storm every year. Um, or maybe the dust gets moved from the place where there's a source and it runs out of, of dust in the place where global dust storms start and all that dust goes somewhere else and you have to wait for normal storms to redistribute everything. Um, but then those models don't work particularly well and Mars might have global dust storms every few years. Uh, but then if you let that go very long, all the dust goes to places that don't trigger global dust storms and Mars can't have them anymore. And uh, Mars clearly does not agree with those models. So we need to figure out exactly how to treat the dust and how to treat what triggers the lifting. And then the meteorology of this, the how do these storms affect each other? And so from that point of view, these orbital measurements are great and we're getting good data, data like we've not seen before. But I think that in order to really understand Mars meteorology, we're going to need Mars weather stations. And I think that is some, something, it's gonna be somewhere we need to go. There are, there are more pressing science questions that NASA is addressing. So things like sample return um, are, are in a different environment. There are things that we want to study about Mars besides its current weather. But I think if we want to be able to understand the weather, which I'm certainly a fan of, we need to put small, long-lived landers in various places on Mars and measure the meteorological variables, pressure, temperature, wind, dust amount, humidity, things like that. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And I, and I know some some people that are into uh, seismology, which would, who would love to help out uh, <laughs> with that, that yes, kind of uh, yeah. lander system for sure. Um, so you're going to be working on the Mars 2020 rover coming up um, yes. with uh, a couple instruments. Do you want to talk about uh, MassChem Z or MassChem Z, as I would say it here in Canada, <laughs> um, and SkyCam, a little bit what you're doing with that? Uh, so MassChem Z is just a continued evolution of the mass cam that we have on the Curiosity rover. Uh, so it's very, very similar in many ways, but it has one very cool new capability, which is that uh, it, it has two very similar eyes and both of them have zoom capability. Uh, so right now, mass cam has this googly eye uh, look where it has one medium angle and one telephoto style lens. And now both of them will be capable of both ends of the range. So we can take wider uh, images for things like landscape or sky. We can take more up-close imaging, uh, zooming in past 100 millimeter focal length uh, to get good detail on things. And we can do that in stereo using both eyes at, the, at matched views. Uh, so it'll be very cool, but it'll be very similar to what we are used to from MastCam on Curiosity. Just, um, just better in the in the zoom way. Then we have the Meta Mars Environmental D Dynamics Analyzer, which is essentially REMS from Curiosity with some enhancements. So it will measure pressure, temperature, and winds. Uh, Curiosity lost the wind measurement uh, to things like pebbles moving around on landing and such. So there's some new protections in, in place for that. So we should have winds through the mission because of that. And then my involvement uh, as someone who is interested in the weather but actually uses cameras and studies lights bouncing around in the atmosphere is SkyCam on Meta will be mounted on the deck looking up 
and be used on a daily basis, we will actually not even have to wake the rover up to take pictures. That's the biggest problem. If I want to take a picture at some random time of day, um, the camera doesn't necessarily need very much energy to take the picture, but I have to wake the whole rover up, start all of its systems, and then take the picture, and that uses a lot of energy. So nighttime imaging or early morning imaging is not that common. With Meta, with Skycam, we'll be able to do that more frequently. And Skycam also has uh, a very weird appearance to it in that on the window in front of the camera, we painted an annulus, a donut of neutral density filters. So there's basically a mirror reflection on it. So if you look at the, the image of the sky, most of the time there's gonna be this dark circle missing from it, a, a stripe going through the image. But when the sun goes into that circle, we'll actually be able to take a picture of the sky and the sun and have them both be at the right exposure. So we'll be able to measure the amount of dust there is in the atmosphere uh, on a daily basis, twice a day with this camera, hmm. as well as things like watch clouds drift over as, um, and things like that. Uh, that, ca that spacecraft will have several new cameras compared to MSL. Uh, so some of the engineering cameras will be different. There'll be color engineering cameras, and there will also be a deck-mounted uh, up-looking engineering camera that's there uh, primarily for the entry, descent, and landing phase to look up at the sky crane. But it will still be there once we land, so we'll be able to look at the sky with that as well. So in general, I'll be looking at ways to take pictures of the sky, and uh, I think Skycam and this new uh, eCam will, will be quite helpful. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. I, I can't wait for that rover. There's so many cool instruments flying on it. Um, so maybe you touched on this with your, your weather network stations, but um, this is just kind of a fun question as we get closer to the end here. You know, if you had complete control of the, the next spacecraft going to Mars after Mars 2020, what kind of instruments would you put on there to, to study dust or, or you know, your, your field of study? What's, what's your dream instrument and dream spacecraft? Yeah, so thinking about something that is good for me personally. Uh, so for starters, anything with a camera makes me happy, but uh, <laughs> something like this network where we could actually measure the weather conditions including dust from different spots on Mars would be the thing that advances the field of atmospheric science on Mars the most. And it's critical to some advance in that field that without ground stations, with just orbital data, um, especially without an aerosynchronous, a geosynchronous uh, on Mars satellite, we, we really need that. Now, on the other hand, I'm, I'm quite a fan of a lot of the things that we're doing with the Mars program. So if we can really turn 2020 into the first step of an actual sample return that happens, I, I'm pretty happy with that as well. Uh, but from the point of view of studying the weather on Mars, um, we, you know, we need a, a bunch of, of very simple stations as opposed to one really big complex station. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for, for joining us and telling us about your work and about this storm. Uh, I learned a lot. I have to go and probably do a lot of reading now, <laughs> as is usually true when I bring on uh, I'm an expert on the show. So um, we really appreciate it. Um, before we go, is there anything you want to plug, any websites um, or you know, a Twitter handle or anything you want, us, want the listeners to, to look into if they want to learn more? Um, no, I actually don't have anything like that to share. So if you want to just link my SSI website, I might get more information up there soon. But uh, yeah, I, I, I stay off of Twitter these days. <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a, land, a landmine uh, <laughs> area sometimes. So uh, I, can, I can definitely uh, relate to that. Great. Yeah, I'll put that link up and then listeners can, can check it out. But again, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot.
That's it, Martians. Do you feel better or worse about the situation facing opportunity? Let me know via email at info at wemartians.com or feel free to send me a tweet at we underscore Martians. I love hearing from listeners. If you enjoyed today's show, consider joining nearly 100 other listeners on Patreon. You'll get bonus content for as little as $1 a month, like our conversation with Mike about the rover in the storm, and an additional seven minutes of audio from this interview with Mark on his work on Jupiter and Titan. Spend a little more, you can get access to the Red Planet Review and our off-nominal Discord, a fantastic community that teaches me new things every day. We're still working hard to put together the We Martians Travel Grant, which will formally kick off when we reach our $450 per month pledge, and we're very close to that goal now, so head over to patreon.com slash wemartians and pledge today. But if that's not your thing, remember we also have t-shirts available in our shop at shop.wemartians.com, and we've got a lot of great designs in there that I'd love for you to check out. Finally, you can also leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us. Thanks to Langa Villa Paul from Germany for your kind review and rating. That's all for today, and we'll talk soon at Aries Margins. Music